friends, welcome to the Redeemer Queen's Park podcast. Redeemer exists to help connect Jesus to people, people to community, and community to mission. We're gathering on Saturdays at 3pm to worship God and fellowship. If you ever have any questions, or if we could be of help in any way at all, then please give us a shout at hello at redeemerqp.com. We hope you'll be encouraged as you hear another one of our Bible talks. Let's listen to the next episode. Thanks to the excellent reread. Good evening, um, Redeemer Church members and guests. It's nice to see everybody. It's nice to be seen by you and it's nice to, to see you. It's nice to see your yeah, smiley faces. It's welcoming. Nice to see everybody. All right, here we go. So Ecclesiastes, we've been going through this book for quite a while. If some of you just joined us here now, we've got another two weeks before we conclude with this book. So um, next week, I believe Thomas will preach and then David um, will conclude the final chapter. And I hope you all really enjoyed this book. You know, sometimes some people can figure it's controversial, it's kind of awkward, it's hard to make sense of it, but I actually think it's a wonderful book. It really is, you know, in terms of life under the sun, you know, on this earth to try and make meaning and trying to make sense of everything. Um, Ecclesiastes is a book of perspective. Um, the narrative of the preacher, teacher, that's Solomon, recalls the depression that inevitably results from the seeking happiness in the worldly things. This book gives us a chance to see the world through the eyes of a person who, though very wise, is trying to find meaning in temporary human things which, is ex- which he explored and indulged in. Most, most every form of worldly pleasure is explored by the preacher, and none of it gives him a sense of meaning without God being at the center of it all. He decides to accept the fact that life is brief and ultimately worthless without God under the sun. Throughout the book, the preacher advised the readers or hearers to focus on an eternal God instead of temporal pleasure under the sun here on earth. The first seven chapters, we've gone through eight chapters already, but the first seven chapters... Solomon's wisdom, he tries wisdom, philosophy, that's chapter 1, 13 to 18. He tries pleasure, chapter 2, verse 1, alcohol, drinks, chapter 2, verse 3, um, architecture, 2, 4, building houses and so forth, possessions, gathering wealth and possessions, chapter 2, 7 to 8, and luxury, just adorning himself with gold and silver and all the wealth. Was to, that was to be gathered. Solomon also turned his mind towards different philosophies to find meaning, such as materialism, to chapter 2, 19 to 20, and even moral code that, you know, Thomas spoke about last week, and we'll see a little bit of that in chapter 9 today. He found that everything was meaningless, a temporal diversion that without God had no purpose or longevity. And that's a hope as we continue in this book, you know, um, without the Lord being at the center, you know, we'll, we'll come to that conclusion. We heard already in chapter three that, you know, there's a time and a season for everything under the earth, you know, and chapter, verse two in chapter three tells us there's a time to born and there's a time to die. So 
we're in that present, we're in that moment of we're living and you know, we all know it's inevitable. So as we go through this book now, we look at nine, we're going to see, you know, um, some of these things. And, and this chapter is like the kind of conversation that I possibly would have with non-believers that I have out in the community, where one of the questions I would ask them after hearing their philosophies and their belief system, the question I would ask them is, so what happens when we all draw our last breath and die? Many of them would say to me, no one knows. For sure, many of them have no idea, you know, um, they can give me their theories, but once they draw their last breath, we all draw our last breath, they have no idea, the majority of them, or what happens when that time comes. This is where I would present to them Solomon's point, um, is what happens to the vilest person, what happens to the best of persons? So what happens to the person who does the best they can? We know they're a good person. They go out of their way to look after people. And what happens to the vilest person who doesn't care about any person at all? Um, that would give me the opportunity to continue the discussion where I would tell them good news, the gospel that God invites them into his heavenly kingdom through belief in his son, Jesus Christ. So as we go into this text now in chapter 9, um, we see Solomon says, so I reflected, or some version says, so I examined, yeah? Now, that's based on the, the chapter before that, chapter 8, um, verse 16, where he says, when I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labor that is done on earth, people getting no sleep day or night, working, toiling, chasing the wind, as we are about in other chapters, you know, he says they get no sleep or maybe no rest. Then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun, despite all their efforts to search it out. No one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. So based on that, it comes to a conclusion now. So I reflect on all of these things, yeah? So we're gonna see here now that, that you know, the un predictability of life and the certainty of death so you know everyone will die so you know Solomon reflects on all of this and he attempts to clear it up with clarity and concludes so I reflect on all of these things he examine all of these things he says the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands we, we do know Israel they were confident keepers of God's word through their lineage, descendant of Abraham. Abraham believed in God's word. He believed what God communicated to him. He trusted in God's word and he acted out what God commanded him to do. So it was accredited to him as righteousness. So, you know, Abraham had right standing with him. And believers who believe God's word, you know, to act out what God calls commands us to do, you know, we also have right standing with God. So as he says, um, he concludes that the righteous and the wise and what they do is in God's hands. So that gives some kind of insurance that what they do or their deeds is in God's hands. And then he goes on to say, whether a love or hate that awaits a person, who knows? You know, man does not know both are before them. And that's quite true, you know, in life as you journey through life, you know, we meet many people that are joyous, that are pleasant. We build good relationships, loving relationships, but at the same time, um, again, 
reverting back to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, you know, there's times and there's seasons of things and the reality, there, there is also hate. So we don't know, we cannot predict at each, every moment what will happen. So love and hate, who knows what awaits them. Man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil. To the ceremonial clean, they would ceremonially clean themselves before they come into God's presence. And the ceremonial unclean may be, you know, um, they, they may be gained through something or, you know, they, they may have been near a dead animal or so, so they'd have to wait a set amount of days before they can come into God's presence. So ceremonial clean, ceremonial unclean. To him who offers sacrifices, God, him who does not offer sacrifice. As good, as good one is, so is the sinner. See different comparisons. And he who swears and he who shuns an oath. This is an evil or an unfortunate fact in all that is done under the sun that the same event happens to us all. That same event is the certainty that all will die. Also, the hearts of children of man are full of evil and madness. Now, we know since Genesis chapter 3, we're about the fall of Adam and Eve through being disobedient, sin enters into the world and... Um, I believe none of us here can, um, you know, deny the, the 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 desires and the things that goes on in our heart. That, you know, we know from time to time there's things that we wouldn't like to do, and we find ourselves at times doing things that we know are unpleasing to God. And and that's just the evil that is in this world. And this is where Jesus comes to deliver us from those things that we cannot deliver ourselves from. Then we see. Better to be poor but alive than rich but dead. So we see verse 4. Anyone who is among the living has hope. As we know, we have hope as long as we're breathing. Then he says, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing once they're dead. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy already perished and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So again, the preacher Solomon considers the unavoidable reality of death for every person. Resurrection to a new life after death was a vague concept for Old Testament believers. It was only made clear after Jesus rose from the dead. The preacher, continu the preacher continues to share all people share the same destiny, death. Ultimately, our lives and the appointed day we will die are in God's hands. He's sovereign. That's verse 1 and 3. Hebrews 9.27 tells us, And just as it is appointed for man or woman to die once, and after that, the judgment. So we know we take heed. Therefore, we must appreciate life and make the most of it while we still have breath in our lungs. No one person, sorry, no one, no one knows whether a person's life in the world will be pleasant or difficult, regardless of whether the person is righteous or wicked. We all possibly know someone where it seems something bad. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, thank you. My voice always goes dry when I'm up here speaking and preaching. Thank you very much, brother. Probably need to order a little table up here, David. Get a table so we can have a drink along the way. I'll use your box for now, right? 
Thank you very much. No one knows whether a person's life in this world will be pleasant or difficult, regardless of whether the person is righteous or wicked. We will possibly know someone where it seems something bad has happened to them, to a good person as we believe them to be, or from what we see and what we witness. Some good things happen to, to them, and also likewise, um, some bad people at times we consider bad, the acts, the things that we see them do, we consider, you know, some good things happen then. We wouldn't mind if probably that happened to maybe someone that we know we think is more deserving. That is the unpredictability of life and these things happen. Nevertheless, in spite of this apparent randomness, one can be assured that the godly person, those who put their trust and hope in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, is in the hands of God. As we see in verse 1, the righteous dead deeds is in the hand of God. However, one unpleasant reality is certain, and that is death. No matter how difficult or humble a person's circumstances. The hope we have among the living while we are living, Solomon is trying to communicate here, it's better to be poor but alive than rich than dead. So this is where he uses the analogy. He says, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. While we have life, no matter how current circumstances, there is hope. When a person is dead, it's all over. The key to grasping the meaning of certain Bible verses is understanding their cultural context, as in this case, which I just said, you know, Solomon says, it's better for a living dog than a dead lion. The idea is, in ancient, in ancient times, Dogs were not cute and cuddly pets as we see and enjoy them right now. I know some of us have beautiful pets, but, you know, it wasn't really considered like that some time back. Let alone, there wasn't all the different varieties of dogs as there is now. Instead, they were looked down on with contempt and considered unclean and revolting scavengers. That's how they looked on them. Wow, yeah? Exodus chapter 22, verse 31 gives us a glimpse in there. It says... You shall be consecrated to me, therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beast in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs, the scavengers, right, in those days. 1 Kings 14, 11. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam, he was a wicked, evil king, who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. That was their due, that's what should have happened to them for his wickedness. You see, lions were esteemed as regal, valiant, powerful hunters. Proverbs 28 verse 1 tells us, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Roar. <laughs> Couldn't resist that. Okay. Um, and Proverbs 30, 30, The lion which is the mightiest among beasts and does not turn back before anyone. Lions were the king of animals, of beasts, and ruled and roared at the top of the food chain, while dogs crouched and groveled at the bottom. So the basic idea of a living dog is better than a dead lion is that as long as there is life, there is hope. Solomon knew these two animals as symbols for two types of people, the lowly and the mighty. From an ancient world point of view, a living dog held no authority or status, but at least had the distinct advantage of life from it was living. 
And same with the poorly. A deceased lion represented someone who may have once been formidably and influential, but was now helpless and hopeless in death. In Solomon's reasoning, it was better to be alive and powerless, yet still with hope, than dead, even if once mighty and respected. Since everyone dies in the end, it's futile and foolish to spend our days in meaningless pursuits of things like power, fortune, and notoriety. Death diminishes the majestic clan to a position below that of the living dog, to a state of nothingness. Chapter 9, verse 5. We are better off taking advantage of the time we have left to evaluate our existence and reflect on our own mortality. This is all viewed from a perspective of living life under the sun on earth, a reasoning many people have without the knowledge of God in their lives, which concludes in the end, we all die and just die and then can't give an answer after there's nothing. And that's a perspective under the sun from an earth's point of view. But we know life is superior to death, verse 4 to 6. Everlasting life, well, there is no comparison to that. But there is no prediction whether one's life in this world will be hard or easy. Therefore, we are advised in verse 7 to enjoy life when circumstances are conducive for it. When godly people do so, they acknowledge that it is due to God's approval or favor. Ecclesiastes 3.13, you know, we've heard a few times, I think we heard it last week as well, you know, to the effect... Everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to mankind. So God endorsed, you know, you work, you be productive, you know, you, you, you need to enjoy life as well. That's, that's what he's saying, you know, do enjoy life. This is God's creation. Hope for the living begins with an awareness of life's brevity. A wise person will ponder the real purpose of life while he or she still can. Earlier, Solomon states in chapter 7, verse 2, this is a um, chapter that Louise preached on um, probably two weeks ago, I think, yeah. So, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. You figure, what's going on here? How's that? Um, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. When we face the reality of death, a natural consequence of attending a funeral, we are forced to contemplate our destiny. Seasons of grief and mourning, mourning serve a valuable purpose. They remind us to seize the day, to make the most of our lives. Verse 7, while we still have breath and hope. Psalms 39 verse 4 to 7 says, Show me, O Lord, my life's end and number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. You have made my days a mere hand breath. The span of my years is nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. And isn't that true? No matter how secure we feel, our life is just a breath. We already know from James, tomorrow is promised to no man or woman. God gives us one life, one priceless opportunity to know him and receive his gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. Isaiah 55 verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near.
If we never think about death and our eternal fate, we will likely miss the chance to spend eternity within the presence of God who invites us to know him through his beloved son, Jesus Christ. The living can still come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and experience the hope of eternal life with God. As believers, we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the late last time. That's 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. The believer's hope is an anchor for the soul, firm and sure, never to be destroyed by death, Hebrews 6, 13 to 20. So life is a breath, sorry, life is a brief, sorry, life is brief, so cherish this joy, cherish it. That's the idea. While we are living, we have hope, cherish life, which comes through ultimately through Jesus Christ. Verse from verse seven, go eat your food with joy and drink your wine with happy hearts. Because God has already approved your works. Let your clothes, so adorn yourself. Let your clothes always be white. What it means, adorn yourself. Yeah, dress up. You, you, you know, you're able to dress up. And do not spare precious ointment. So you might have a bit of perfume after shave. You know, anoint yourself. Look good. Nothing's wrong with that. Look after yourself. You're God's image bearer. Because, verse 10, whatever you find to do with your hands, do it with all your might, because there is neither work nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom in the grave or the realm of the dead. So whatever you do with your hands, whatever gift, whatever ability God has given you, do it with all your might. So again, God does approve for us to enjoy him and his creation, verse 7. Let's not get things confused, though. God approves of us living this life he has created for us to glorify him and to enjoy him forevermore. Not all things we do are approved by God. So sorry to possibly spoil some of our fun. Yeah, We can't just have liberty to go and do exactly what we want to do because we all know in our hearts, you know, without boundaries, we will do things that will get us in trouble and other people will get them in trouble. Is that true? Amen. We know that's true. That's the sinful nature in our hearts. So, um, yeah, God wants us to do that. So God does approve for us to eat, enjoy food, you know, drink, you know, enjoy these things. And um, they're a delight. They're a joy. Even more so if we do them in good company or we do them with people to bless him, you know. Feasting and eating is a wonderful time for fellowship where people really can relax and, um, you know, just engage with one another, you know. The Bible talks about many feasts and we know the bride, you know, when, when the groom meets the bride, which is the church, there's going to be an end time feast. What a wonderful picture. Whatever food that you like you're going to be able to feast on that. Jesus said he ain't even drinking wine until we come back anyway. You know, I mean, we, we get the opportunity, we can do that. But, you know, we know God, God is good, you know, so everything is within moderation. So, um, yeah, God approves of all of these things, but it's all in moderation. God desires us to have fun, 
and for our life here, for our life here is only momentarily, just, just that and it's gone. Unfortunately, all these physical things we see and can experience in this life is a temporary foreshadow, putting, pointing us to our ultimate fulfillment, which can only be fulfilled and satisfied in Christ Jesus alone. What, what that means is, you know, we will chase, we know Solomon, a person of wisdom, trying to make sense of things, you know, he has pursued all of these things to make sense of it. We've, we've seen it before in the first eight chapters, how he concludes, you know, he's had women, he's had food, he's had all of the resources that his heart desires. And that's the same for us. Our heart would probably desire some of those things. But he didn't find a satisfaction. He said it's all vanity. It's like win. Why? We all probably got a deep hole. We will keep on going. We will reach certain stages of fulfillment in the things that we desire. We get there. We're filled momentarily. But then, come on, let's go again. We would probably keep on going till it destroys us. That's why we need a saviour, a precious, gracious Lord, like our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So, to verse 10. Whatever your hands do, do it with all your might. Use your gift to glorify God. Use your gift, your talent, to be a blessing to God, to other people and to your organisation. That's God's blessing gift to you. Also on verse 10, it also states that there is no thought or knowledge in the realm of the dead. Yes, yeah, so they say no thought, no realm in the knowledge of dead. And also like verse 5, if you look back on verse 5, right, it states that the dead know nothing when they are dead. So the dead have no thought or know nothing. But in what way does Solomon mean? I mean, from this earthly perspective, you know, it's a perspective without God, you know, that when a person died, they, they know nothing. Obviously, they cease to exist in this realm, in this world that we know it, you know. And as I said, the Old Testament didn't really grasp the concept of resurrection life, though they had faith and belief that God would redeem them. So from an earthly perspective, it means that it's all over and we're in the grave. And, and don't we probably get that when we have conversations with many people? But, you know, he doesn't contradict himself. As I said, Ecclesiastes is a wonderful book. So he says there's no knowledge of any thoughts or anything when they go to the grave. And he also say when they did, they know nothing. But listen, now firstly, it's very clear in Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. And these will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. So let's start looking a bit at that, you know? Yeah? This speaks of an everlasting consciousness. I don't know what it looks like, but it speaks of an everlasting consciousness. We'll look at this. Every person will spend eternity with God in heaven or apart from God in hell because of their personal choice. God loves his creation, he really does. He created us in his image, in his likeness. He is constantly beckoning and, and, and ushering us towards him, to trust in him, to be the loving father, the creator, the creator. So he does give us a personal choice. The Holy Spirit is so pure and gentle, it gives us a choice. So we need to have that within hearts. And that usually happens through the gospel being proclaimed not only through being proclaimed, it also is through the gospel being demonstrated in words and deeds. So it's not always just preaching, it's actually loving. 
So as we journey to be a loving church, that is, when people come in through the door we have never seen before, we all know what it's like when we're isolated by ourselves. Loving is just drawing alongside them. We probably all know the testimonies. You know, when a person goes away, might not make too much sense of the church or the place, but they definitely can say, boy, those people were different. They, they were really gracious and loving. What's the Bible say? They can tell us by the love that we have for one another. So Redeemer, as we grow and we journey, let's hearts God to kind of work in our hearts that we likewise will gravitate to people and just love them. God demonstrated his love to us. We only love him because he first loved us. But come on. So anyway, Matthew 25, verse 36, as I said, it speaks of everlasting consciousness. Every person will spend in one place, and that's personal choice. It's not God. God is a good God. Each person will have feelings, they'll have thoughts, and the ability that exists in eternity. There is an eternity with a consciousness for the living and the dead. In fact, you can mark it if you don't know this, but classic um, narrative in Luke chapter 16, verse 19 to 31. Wonderful narrative that gives a picture on this, right? It offers an example of human capabilities in the afterlife. Lazarus is in paradise in eternal joy, while the rich man, who had everything down there, weren't short of nothing, is in torment in hell, a place called Hades. The rich man has, the rich man has feelings, that's in Hades, in hell. He's not here on life, he's gone on, he died, right? He has feelings, he can talk, and he has the ability to remember as he thinks about his brother still on earth, kind of story like, you know, he's in Hades, Check this out. You know, there's a, there's a gulf and a barrier. No idea what it looks like. But he is in torment because what? He's not asking for a cup of water. He's not asking for a cup of water. He asks um, Abraham to allow Lazarus just to dip his finger in the water to quench his tongue. Think about that. Parch your thirsty. Wow. So that's just a little picture there. Then there's a dialogue that goes on. He had the opportunity to be by Abraham's side as Lazarus is right now. But he pleads. I didn't really know about that. But, you know, send somebody down to teach to my brothers because he has brothers on the earth. The narrative says, if they didn't listen to Abraham... Even if somebody comes from the dead and goes down to them, they're not going to listen to them. You know, God knows our heart. Many people out there, they say, if I see it, I believe it. But God has already demonstrated the sign, which is Jesus Christ. So likewise, you can see that when we pass to be in eternity, even in the kingdom of God, or separate from the kingdom of God, we pray that people will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. So as I said, the rich man who sought pleasure and despised the poor man, he was actually at his gate. When they both died, they both went to different places. So these verses demonstrate some form of awareness that exists for us all in eternity, wherever we will spend it. Verse 11 and 12 
more unpredictability about life. Life is so uncertain. I have seen something under the sun. The race is not for the swift and the battle for the strong. We know it's not always the fastest runner. Sometimes things just happen. We know the person might be the fastest runner. We know someone who's got the best of talent, but they're not always going to win. It's not always the strongest person. I think we remember the time, remember if you can remember anyone back, I mean Mike Tyson used to be devastating. You'd quiver probably watching, I'd quiver looking on telly and thinking somebody's going in the ring to fight with him. He'd knock him out in the first, second, third round. I wouldn't even dare, brain damage, the way he punched, he was just gruesome. But you see, his time came. It's never about, it's not always going to go that way. So um, there's an element of wisdom we're going to go on to first in the next couple of chapters, in the next couple of verses. Likewise, again, you know, um, nor does food always come to the wise or the wealthy or the brilliant or favor to the learned. We have some well, highly educated people, but, you know, they're not necessarily all flourishing and, and living the life that they've equipped and educated and trained themselves to live sorry, to be in, to live that lifestyle. Life is unpredictable. It really is unpredictable. While not denying God's sovereignty over human affairs, Solomon does admit that from a finite, fallible human perspective, many things that occurred in the world have the appearance of being a result of pure chance. These verses just explain what unusual, what usually happens in our sinful and unperfected world uncertainties and unpredictabilities but still we must keep our perspective and not let the inequalities or life or life keep us from our calling as we serve our God and love people in the midst of these uncertainties so the last couple of verses you know 13 to 18 the power of wisdom or you know um, most people are not receptive to wisdom you know, we, we don't really value that in, in this world. You know, wisdom in terms of the soft words spoken and, you know, having good sound advice. We seem to look for something that looks glamorous or something that looks really appealing. So we see verse 13. This is what I also observed about wisdom on earth. And it is a great burden to me, saying it's a burden to him as he experiences. There was a small city and a few men in it. Look for me at verse 14. Here we go. Yep. Okay. So I read again from 13. I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it, and a powerful king came against it. Powerful king. Surrounded it and built huge siege works against it. Now there lived in the city a poor man, but wise and he saved the city by his wisdom. So probably he gave some good kind of counsel, whether they negotiated with the king, whatever they did, you know, in, in to, you know, what was destined to probably detrimental to that city and the residents there. The poor man probably gave God's counsel and um, and now they lived there, yeah, this poor man, but nobody remembered him. So, um, and he saved the city by his wisdom. So we can see obviously which, you know, it was meant to be devastation. The city was saved. Maybe there was a treaty with the king, whatever, but he was saved them. But no one remembered the poor man. So you see, most people are not receptive to wisdom or we don't really value it. And we see that just there. So Solomon said, wisdom 
is better than strength, but the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are no longer heeded. Yeah, wisdom can achieve much good and there is therefore worth, therefore it's worth pursuing and yet its benefit can be undone by evil. The preacher has observed an instance of wisdom and his ability to snatch a remarkable victory from the jaws of defeat. So even when such wisdom is forgotten or despised by others, it is still to be prized over earthly might. So let's take heed and try and have ears to listen to the wise counsel and those things that are said to us that may not seem glamorous, but let's just try and be attentive, you know. Ultimately, Christ is, you know, made wisdom unto us. That's God's wisdom unto us. And the wisdom of this world is foolishness compared to God's wisdom. So the words of the wise are heard quiet more than the shouting of the ruler is heard among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one fool can destroy much good. And don't we know that? You know, one person make a decision in the moment. It can have devastating impacts. It can last for a lifetime and it can be hurtful. So the preacher balances his praise of wisdom's power and effectiveness by observing that just as one wise man can successfully overcome the worst odds, so also can one sinner destroy much good. So in conclusion to all of this, the foreshadow conclusion of this chapter, for all of the uncertainties described in this chapter in nine, the answer is Christ for our full satisfaction, joy and hope, knowing our very lives rest in his hand. Ultimately, every disappointment described in this chapter has its remedy in Christ, the wisdom of God. And the only true meaning to be found in life, this book offers us an opportunity to understand the emptiness and despair that those who do not know God grapple with. Many people on a daily basis grapple with this. They live in the moment without thinking of the eternal consequences. Those who do not have a saving faith in Christ are faced with a life that will ultimately end and become irrelevant. If there is no salvation and no God, then not only is there no point to life, but no purpose of direction to it either. That's the Big Bang Theory evolution. The world under the sun, apart from God, is frustrating. It's cruel. It's unfair. It's brief. And it's subtly meaningless. But with Christ, life is but a shadow of the glories to come in a heaven that is only accessible through him. Though death comes to us all, God gives us all an invitation to call on him, whoever believes in him. Romans chapter 10, verse 13. For everyone, not some, not the so-called who think they're privileged, everyone. That means everyone and anyone, whoever you are, whoever they may be, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. God can't lie. Being saved means you will come to know God, your creator, who loves you dearly 
and invites you to spend eternity with him. Where Revelations 21 verse 4 says, what a wonderful picture this is. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death will not exist anymore. Or mourning. Or crying. Or pain. If you all come up. For the former things have ceased to exist. That's a wonderful picture. So our encouragement from this chapter is to enjoy our lives. In that we, in all that we do. Let us do it for God's glory. Remembering our lives are precious. And one day we will stand before our God and give an account for this life we are living. So with that, let us have faith and put our trust in God, in Jesus Christ, who we look to as our Lord and Saviour. I pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that we know that it is a certainty. Death comes to us all. But Lord, thank you that you make it known for those who put their trust in you. Really, our life is only just starting because eternity is never ending. This life was always temporal since sin entered into the world. So Lord, help us to take heed from what we just heard. Help us, Lord, as we seek to live a life that is pleasing unto you. Lord, I pray for each and every one here today that you would continue to encourage them, strengthen them, Lord. Help us through these challenging times, through these hard times, through these discouraging times. Help us to find our satisfaction and our fulfillment in you. And Lord, forgive us where we've not trusted you. Forgive us, Lord, when we've done those things that is not right in your sight. But we know that you are a God who desires and is willing to bless your people. So again, Lord, as we gather today, move amongst us, Lord. Continue to work in our hearts that we can live our lives to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. 